The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And today's guest, James Boltitude of OrbitFab. Hey. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. James Boltitude is the lead engineer at OrbitFab, a startup with the goal of putting gas stations in space. OrbitFab's first mission in space, FURFI, demonstrated in-space refueling aboard the International Space Station this summer. On this episode, James speaks with us about the challenges of in-space refueling, FURFI's journey from concept to real experiment in less than a year, and OrbitFab's vision for the future. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what is your past experience and how did you arrive uh, at spacecraft engineering in the first place? Ah, okay. Um, I guess it really goes back to watching too much Star Trek as a kid. Um, Yeah. Uh, No, uh, I was kind of brought up by kind of engineers and scientists. My mom's a marine biologist. Uh, My dad was an an electrical engineer uh, in telecommunications. and it's kind of always been a household, you know, where we talked about these kinds of things and, and learnt about these kinds of things, went to lots of museums as a kid. Uh, really, really, really thought I wanted to be an astronomer. Uh, went away and did a cosmology uh, course while I was in my final year of high school and was convinced that I was going to be an astronomer and had a, a really good kind of university professor that was teaching some high school kids, uh, Bruce McKinnon, back in Australia, that, that sat me down and said, James, I think you should be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is probably the best advice I've ever been given. Um, yeah, so uh, that kind of uh, kind of changed my, my path a little bit, and I went and looked at aerospace engineering uh, a lot, lot more deeply. Uh, went to the University of New South Wales back in Australia, studied aerospace engineering um, and mechanical engineering. Graduated from there and, and had to get some internships kind of to finish up. Um, and so I... I eventually got connected up to the Australian Centre for Space Engineering Research, which is kind of a lab within within the university at UNSW. Um, and they were in kind of the final exciting stages of building a CubeSat, which for Australia was, I think, the first spacecraft in about 15 years that had been wow. built. So um, got to do some attitude determination and control system design there. So wow. we designed a, a detumble controller. So when your spacecraft is spinning, stop it spinning with magnets. Yeah. Um, and then that that really kind of... I kind of assumed that while aerospace was really cool and a cool thing to study, it might be a long time before I, you know, get to actually work on any systems that fly in space. Uh, and then that really changed my mind when it, when it happened pretty promptly, kind of before I'd graduated. So um, put me down a path working for a, a bunch of different startups um, and, and with a couple of different educational institutions. Um, went and got a master's degree at International Space University in Strasbourg, France, uh, which is a, a very cool experience, a uh, very cool little little place. Um, and then joined the team at OrbitFab kind of right as, right as they'd become uh, kind of funded and uh, it started to build an engineering team. So I was actually the, the first hire. Um, and it was kind of a, the, the, the first day at OrbitFab for me was kind of the first day they were funded and the first day of the Furfy mission. So it was oh, a, wow. kind of an exciting, exciting turn on period for all of us. So what brought you to OrbitFab in particular? 
Um, so I'd, I'd been in France. I'd, I went back and was studying, doing my master's degree. Uh, and when I was wrapping that up, I kind of wrote myself a list of requirements, um, like a good systems engineer. I wanted a job uh, on, on the west coast of the US. I'm, uh, despite my, my accent, I'm kind of American and Australian. My, my mom's American, my dad's Australian. I wanted a job on the West Coast. I have, I have a bunch of family in Los Angeles. Um, I'd been living in Colorado for a couple of years and quite liked that, but wanted the ocean again. I wanted a job in kind of space propulsion. Um, I'd previously been doing pretty much all kind of dynamics and small sat stuff and was interested in, in the propulsion stuff pretty heavily. And I wanted a job at a new space company where I'd kind of like get an opportunity to get really, really hands on and, and grow quickly. Um, and so Orbit Fab seemed like a really good fit for that. And then when, when I learned about the mission and, and met, met Daniel uh, and Jeremy, the founders, uh, it, was, it was pretty obvious pretty quickly that, that it was the right place. So, so Orbit Fab, orbital refueling, it's not quite propulsion. Uh, well, so it's, it's not, but uh, if you want to make a gas station, you have to understand an engine. Um, and there's, there's a lot of different kinds of propellant that's actually used in space these days and a lot of different systems. Um, so I have the job where I get to talk to every different thruster company out there and find out how their systems work, figure out how to change their systems to make them refuelable, and then figure out how to get fuel and put them in spacecraft that are themselves gas stations, but they're also spacecraft with their own thrusters. Um, so it kind of gets to interact with everyone in in-space propulsion. Um, and then when you talk about and think about how you get the fuel into space, you start interacting with a lot of the rocket guys, um, looking at the fuels that they use and all those things. So it's it's not thruster design, um, but it's still part of the, the propulsion wheelhouse, I'd say. Can you tell us a little bit more about OrbitFab's history? Yeah, so uh, OrbitFab was founded in January of 2018. Um, I think they were founded January 2nd. I think we were founded January 2nd, yeah. Holy cow. So, um, so yeah, and they'd been working a little bit before that, um, but kind of formulated the, the idea and, and got it into action. Um, Jeremy and Daniel and uh, Gopal were the founders. Uh, Jeremy was previ uh, previously uh, working at Deep Space Industries, and before that he kind of worked in automotive, um, has a bit of background there. And Daniel was previously the CEO at Deep Space Industries. Um, Deep Space Industries, for the people that don't know, is was uh, an asteroid mining company um, that got acquired last year by Bradford Space. So they were looking at, uh, in the future, how do we get water, volatiles, metals, all these things out of asteroids so that we can use them in space and on Earth? Um, really trying to enable the, the, the next century of, of space expansion. Um, and one of the things that they ran across, uh, they, they came into two big problems in, in kind of looking at asteroid mining. They needed to build these surveying spacecraft and they needed propulsion. And they discovered that, that in-space propulsion is actually kind of hard to go by. Um, there's lots and lots of different systems out there and a lot of them work really, really well. But a lot of them have kind of one-year lead times, high costs, so really bespoke things. Um, and then a lot of them aren't really CubeSat compatible uh, in, in terms of the, the, the CubeSat standard as written because they have uh, dangerous propellants, they might need to be launched pressurized, things like that. So Deep Space Industries eventually built a water thruster. Um, they built a number of products, but their water thruster is kind of one of their really, really powerful and affecting products on the industry. Um, the other thing they realized was that there was kind of a market for in-space propellant and that that market actually precedes the asteroid mining. So... Um, in space refueling and what you could do if you had more fuel in space uh, is affects asteroid mining. It, it enables that to become a business later on, but it's also kind of essential without asteroid mining and those kinds of things. So basically, they 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 realized that 
there are a lot of people, um, you know, civil defense and a lot of different use cases for this extra fuel and the mobility that it entails. Right. So spacecraft would use the fuel for thrusters changing their orbits in space or maintaining an orbit that might be unstable or um, maintaining a particular yeah, inclination so and altitude. Lots and lots of things. You can you can use it to stay in the same place. You can use it to go to a different place. Um, but what's really exciting is the new kind of business models we're seeing standing up, the satellite servicing business models, where people are looking at space tugs, uh, people are looking at deorbit tugs, where you go out and grab a spacecraft that's died earlier than expected and bring it back in. Uh, people are looking at, at complex servicing, swapping out components and things like that. Um, and people looking at kind of cycling back to the moon and back and forth and things like that. And a lot of those businesses, uh, you're building an expensive spacecraft to fix an expensive spacecraft. Um, so refueling really becomes valuable there, especially since those assets might only have short lifetimes. They might only have two or three year lifetimes at the most. Um, refueling assets that are reaching the end of their life so that they can stay in position and keep their instruments pointed and everything is, is important too. You know, there are assets out there like at some point in time, Hubble, some point in time, probably pretty soon, it's going to run out of fuel and it would be awesome to replace the fuel on that and keep that asset flying. Um, but, but first, uh, kind of Orbit Fab sees it as, as all about the satellite servicing businesses and how we can enable them and change the way that everyone does business in space. It's kind of the beginning of infrastructure. Right. So you're, you're building infrastructure to enable paradigms that aren't really fully explored yet. Yeah, exactly. So like, I mean, a, a jet, like a Boeing 747 mm -hmm. is actually pretty equivocal in price to a spacecraft, but your ticket on that is pretty low because it gets reused. I think it's like 40,000 times over its lifetime. A spacecraft usually gets used basically one time. Um, and as we start to develop really specialized spacecraft to do complex tasks, like these servicing tasks, reusing them becomes really powerful. All right, so you, you gave kind of a foundation for what OrbitFab aims to do, but uh, what's OrbitFab's founding mission in general? Is, is the space servicing the core mission, um, mission statement, or, or is it something different? OrbitFab's mission really is to make spacecraft reusable in the same way that SpaceX and Blue Origin um, and, and now Rocket Labs is coming to the party too are making rockets reusable. We want to see reusable spacecraft across the whole industry. Um, we think it starts with the satellite servicing guys, but we're not satellite servicing guys. We're kind of the, the standard oil that, that provides that fuel on to the, the Boeings and, and those companies so that they can go out there and, and do cool things. So that's where it comes from for gas stations in space. You're not... You're not building, you're, you're like building tankers that other spacecraft would come up to. Yeah, we're not tow trucks. We are gas stations. <laughs> yeah. So that is very impressive. Um, but can you break down the phrase gas stations in space? So what could that mean for the future of space operations? Like what, what would that end-to-end, uh, -end what step-by-step, -step, what would it be like to yeah, refuel so at a gas station in space? The, the first thing is that... Uh, it's much like on Earth, you don't have kind of build one gas station and, and call it done. It's it's like a disaggregated network where there's uh, lots of different fuels in lots of different places, um, which scares people a little bit at first. And Leo seems really, really scary at first because there's lots of orbits in Leo. But the thing is, most people tend to clump together. Um, so around the sun sink and, and places like that. Um, and so it really comes down to the different business cases of the of the, the end users and how they use it. So say let's say you're a deorbit tug. Um, we wrote a white paper recently that looks at this kind of deorbit tug business case because it's an interesting one. Um, they would go out and go out maybe to a high Leo orbit and grab a failed communication spacecraft hypothetically. Uh, and they would, they would bring that spacecraft down to a lower orbit, um, drop that spacecraft off there, 
come back around at that low orbit rendezvous with us, grab more fuel, and then they'd be able to go out and grab another spacecraft um, as opposed to themselves deorbiting straight away. Mm. Um, say you're an Earth observation spacecraft, you could change your whole business model um, because you could you could fly lower than you were able to before and then kind of boost your orbit back up, which would burn a lot of fuel, but when you're gonna go get more fuel, you don't care as much. Um, there's kind of like a lot, a lot of ways to do this because it's right now everyone has, everything's built around this bespoke systems where you design a car and then build the car one time and then drive it one place and then it's done. And people have already started the whole, you know, hey, let's build the same car a hundred times. Um, but once you start refueling it, it's, it's a whole nother thing. Yeah, especially with uh, more talk about uh, operations between Earth and the moon and long-term space stations and long-term uh, spacecraft like that. Yeah, I can see. Definitely, especially when people start to pull water out of the moon. Um, that's really exciting. That's, that's you know, that's the future stuff, but but that's kind of like part of the, the long-term mission is to, to, to be there to buy that water from the people that mine it from the moon and then and sell it on to other people so that they can do other cool space businesses uh, and science. Like, it's all kind of linked. We, we get the infrastructure up there and then we're able to do way more exciting science. So what are some of the challenges from an engineering perspective and an orbital dynamics perspective of orbital refueling? So I, I see there as kind of three big challenges. Um, we'll start with the engineering ones because they're a little bit easier to break down sometimes. Um, the first one is that there's lots of orbits, lots of different customers with lots of different propulsion systems and lots of different propellants. Um, so the good news there is a lot of that shakes out over time. Um, there are, you know, while there are maybe a hundred different things available, there, there are some really dominant things. Um, and as we build more and more constellations and reuse more and more buses, uh, this gets better. Um, because people tend to adopt commonly used systems and draw from heritage and things like that. So like, yeah, for a long period of time, kind of hydrazine and xenon were kind of the fuels to use. And now we're seeing a lot of different fuels coming up and being used now. But over time, we're going to see that that whittle itself to back down as we find which of those are the best systems. For um, example, if water is mined on the moon and it's super available in space and you want to get it from asteroids and stuff, then water would be a dominant one. But it could change over time, I guess, too, as well. Yeah, I mean, we've got like three kinds of green monoprop, four kinds of green monoprop that get talked about at the moment. Um, you know, we, we have like ECAPS, uh, we have uh, MF315, the Air Force one, um, very similar, different different things. Uh, they're almost like a, a solid rocket dissolved into a solution, um, kind of. And then uh, you have hydrogen peroxide, which can be an oxidizer or a fuel. Um, people starting to talk about that as, as a green monoprop and as, as a biprop as an oxidizer. Um, and then you're, you're seeing kind of derivatives of that from other places in the world as well. Um, and then you have water, right? And so we, we've got the moment we've got kind of four different uh, fuels there that, that could become new industry standards. Uh, and we'll see in the next kind of five to 10 years how that shakes out. And do you have different challenges depending on the fuel? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like what? So uh, some fuel, like hydrogen peroxide, uh, you have a big challenge with people in the past. It was considered quite a dangerous oxidizer, um, but now it's available in better purities and people are understanding a lot more about how to handle it. The material properties are much better, more testing is happening. So that comes down to material properties and making sure it doesn't catalyze. Uh, with some of the green monoprops, some of them burn quite, quite hot. And so you have to deal with really high temperatures uh, at, in the thruster. And so making the thruster itself reusable, if, you know, if it has components like a catalyst bed that might degrade. Uh, some fuels have problems with being trapped in small cavities uh, and, and don't like that. Some fuels dry out over time and become kind of 
salts. So lots of different things that, that can happen. Um, some knowledge out there quite publicly and some kind of tribal knowledge that you have to try and access in the industry. So, so are those challenges that come about from designing spacecraft and designing thrusters that will be using these uh, propellants? Yeah. Or is it more like, are there specific challenges for orbital refueling and transferring fuel between spacecraft that are different between fuels? So <sighs> between transferring different fuels, there are, um, but it's mostly in a couple different classes. So you mostly have kind of your liquid... Uh, and, and I should mention as well that, that there's a whole other class of propellants that, that we don't talk about very much, which is cryogens. Um, and, and OrbitFab made the decision that the cryogens we should kind of leave on the table for now. So um, right now, most in-space propulsion, and uh, probably 95% of it is done with, with storables, um, even monoprops, storable monoprops or biprops. Uh, we have two propellants, a, propellant, a fuel and an oxidizer that you mix together. Uh, and then... Um, also, you know, you have your your noble gases that you use in your electric propulsion systems like xenon. So transferring hydrazine is very different to transferring xenon. It's very different to transferring HAN. Um, transferring hydrazine and a lot of your green monoprops on orbit is all really, really similar. Uh, moving your xenon around is quite different. Um, xenon does things to O-rings, <laughs> makes them swell over time, stuff like that. It's a much higher pressure system. With xenon, you're, you're looking at an operating pressure around 3,000 psi, whereas with a lot of your, your liquid monoprops, you're looking at around 500 psi. Uh, so there's you know, a big difference there in pressures. Mm -hmm. um, xenon has all kinds of, of uh, interesting market things. Uh, it's not really primarily produced, meaning no one like pulls xenon out of the atmosphere on its own. We pull other gases out and get xenon as a result. So xenon has a really fluctuating price on the market, uh, which is why a lot of people are looking at Krypton now. Um, SpaceX are flying Krypton in their, their new constellation. Krypton looks very promising, but it's, it's a brand new fuel. And so we don't know how that'll shake out. So from kind of a business engineering point of view, um, you know, small Silicon Valley based minimal viable product team, we have to, to decide which fuels and which customers are real uh, and focus our efforts there. And which did you pick? Uh, I can't say fully, okay. um, but you know, we're, we're focusing first on our, on our liquid monoprops. We're working our way through our liquid monoprops and biprops. Yeah. How about challenges with regard to uh, OrbitFab spacecraft design? Um, orbital refueling. Like, there's so many questions and transferring mass between two different spacecraft that are independent, have independent attitude control systems. And yeah, how does that work? So that's one of the other big challenges. We have the, the joy of having spacecraft that are 95% fuel by mass, um, which, which people don't normally do unless they're kind of rocket upper stages. Um, that's kind of what, what we did with Furphy was we, we looked at uh, residual momentum and slosh and some of those fuel effects and, and how that affects it. Um, but yeah, so thrusters, propulsion, kind of dealing with all that and, and dealing with the, the full chains, you know, a lot of different tanks out there, a lot of different layouts of the engines. Um, that's kind of one of the big challenges for in-space refueling. Uh, the other big challenge engineering-wise is is the rendezvous at ProxOps and docking. We call it RPOD or RPO, um, which is basically finding the other spacecraft, uh, coming up to it and, and docking. Um, that's not a super commonly done thing, especially kind of with small sats, which is where we see a lot of these architectures starting. So uh, a lot of lots, lots and lots of times that has happened in space, um, but it's usually been a project and not a product. So it, you unfortunately can't go out and buy a kit that does this right now. Um, so yeah, we, we've, been, we've been looking at that and, and trying to see who, who's gonna make that available and how that's gonna affect the industry. Um, there's a lot of people kind of working on it right now. We'll see how that, how that plays out. And then the, the final kind of big challenge uh, is basically the fact that, that in-space refueling isn't designed into anyone's system right now. Big programs, little programs, 
a lot of them have their own primary mission and their own primary risks, and that's their focus. Um, so uh, it's really got to be demonstrated. Uh, it's got to be trusted. And, and then we're going to get to see some good effects from it. So, yeah, we, we have an aggressive kind of test and demonstration campaign um, and, and looking at early customers and customers that are willing to take that risk. And particularly, like I said before, the, the customers that it really changes the most for are the satellite servicing customers. And, and that's where we think it starts. Like you said, a lot of the technology that you're describing and a lot of the challenges that you're facing are not really new. Um, and we haven't seen orbital refueling come on the market per se. Yep. Uh, so can you explain why, like, is it just the timing is right now or is it an innovative approach from OrbitFab? What makes now the time to begin? So yeah, it's a combination. The timing, the timing is good now. Um, I have a slide that goes in pretty much every kind of conference presentation I give that, that shows the history of, of small sat rendezvous and proxops missions and shows that this is like an achievable thing. Missions like DART, CanX45, that did formation flying. Uh, it hasn't flown yet, but missions like CPOD, CubeSat proximity operations docking and showing that this, this idea of actually bringing two spacecraft and docking them together isn't just something you can do at a space station and Apollo scale, um, but it's something that can be done at a, at a small scale. Um, and a lot of that comes from the computing and the miniaturization of sensors, um, your smartphone, I mean, and NASA has a demo where they use a smartphone as, a, as an example of a, how a docking system could work, you know. So, so that all comes from all that camera, um, you know, getting flash LiDAR coming down in size, all that. So that's one thing. Uh, and then the other thing is really the timing on the satellite servicing industry. Um, the fact that there are now kind of businesses emerging. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to, to big constellations. When we have big, big communications constellations, uh, we need trash collectors and tow trucks and, you know, more economic users and more science users lead to more services, lead to bigger infrastructure right. and, a, and economies a of scale. Exactly. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem uh, where spacecraft aren't designed to be refueled, so they can't be refueled. Um, but there's no fuel for them in space because no one's buying the fuel. So if you put the fuel there, people might start buying the fuel, but then <laughs> they might not. So that's kind of a that's why we've been kind of like trying to break that break that, that stalemate and, and push this into a, a product that exists out there for people so they can change their, their kind of engineering and economic trades. Great. So this summer, OrbitFab launched an experiment at the space station called FURFI. Can you go over what was the goal of this experiment and how it worked? Sure thing. Uh, so FURFI was a residual momentum and slosh experiment. So we're looking at how fluids work in microgravity. Uh, we're interested in, in fuels, in our kind of liquid monoprops and biprops. Um, but but on space station we use water because they they won't let the astronauts play with hydrazine inside, um, <laughs> which is a very good thing. Um, so yeah, we we, uh, we basically have two uh, tanker test beds, which are kind of stand-ins for our minimal viable product vehicle sizes. So one of them's a 16 u cubesat scale vehicle. Uh, it has a tank inside that's the same kind of size mass and everything as our tank. Uh, it's at a much lower pressure because uh, we're working inside space station. And then we have a second vehicle, which is kind of a stand-in for a 6U CubeSat, and it has a, a novel flexible toroidal tank technology that we have, which we call Flex Tank. So if you imagine kind of like a, a pool donut uh, that that is kind of two pool donuts, one inside each other, uh, you put one of them, you put fuel in, and then the outside one you put pressure in, in. Um, so just kind of an inert gas. So they can be launched, stuffed into a little box. They fit into like a 2U volume, so a, a kind of 20 by 10 by 10 centimeter volume. And then when they deploy out, they become uh, kind of a 15 liter, kind of uh, three, three-ish gallon. I'm not so good at the Imperial units. <laughs> um, okay. 
Yeah, so so quite a larger tank, which lets you get a large mass fraction in a small spacecraft. So uh, that's kind of a, a long-term technology we're excited about. Um, I've always been super into uh, deep space CubeSat exploration. I think that's I think when we can when we can take uh, you know six to twelve CubeSat scale vehicles and send them out to the to the planets and things like that. That's when um, university students are going to get to start sending out science missions to planets, which makes me super excited. I don't think this is going to be next year, obviously, but you know, in twenty or thirty years, maybe. Um, and and some of that's kind of uh, you know that comes from me building building CubeSats as a as a student and being excited by that. Um, but yeah, so the Furfy basically what we do is we we pump water uh, back and forth between the two different vehicles, so we can get different levels of fill on those tanks. And then our astronaut kind of uh, colloquially shakes, rattles, and rolls, um, but basically spins the uh, the spacecraft stand ins up, uh, stops them, and then we let the the spacecraft process. So. The water inside the tanks acts like a kind of a reaction wheel and starts to spin the spacecraft back up again. Um, so we look at how that is compared to our models. Um, microgravity fluid slosh and momentum models and things are not the best fluid mechanics models on the planet. Um, and, and fluid mechanics is obviously always a little bit uh, kind of the model and reality are always a little bit different. So test data is important. So that's what that was about generating. But at the same time, we get the benefit that uh, a lot of the components that we use in this experiment are the same components will fly in our early tankers, in our minimal viable product tankers. So raising the technology readiness level on, on the component level um, really helps us buy down risk on, on programs. Did you end up having to design both your tanker and your stand-in for a customer spacecraft? Basically, we developed the whole kind of fluid system as if it would be in both spacecrafts. Uh, we replaced the avionics that would normally be on a spacecraft with kind of experiment avionics. Um, because it's an experiment, uh, you can take a different different risk profile. Um, there's an astronaut as well to kind of fix things when things break. Um, you can use uh, your inside, which gives you some radiation shielding. Uh, you have a, a shorter lifetime, much, much higher risk tolerance in an experiment. So you can use things like Raspberry Pis uh, as your compute that you just wouldn't use. I mean, people use them in spacecraft, and they have different risk profiles as well, but we wouldn't use that in, in, a, in a spacecraft that's expected to perform operationally. Um, but yeah, so the, the fluid system is, is very, very flight-like, um, with the exception that it's water, um, some changes there to make it astronaut safe. Because um, at the end of the experiment, the other thing we did was uh, we launched the water up, um, and we didn't want to bring the water back down um, because we're all about kind of economizing on the mass we put to orbit and <laughs> making things more effective infrastructure-wise. Uh, so we pumped the water into space station at the end of the day, which was... Um, Sounds very easy, like, you know, if you have 15 liters of extra water at its space station, but um, actually kind of a complex task because space station was never really designed to accept extra water. Uh, Flush it down the toilet? <laughs> uh, we, it was pumped into the wastewater bus yeah. uh, with a complex <laughs> series of hoses. Um, but, you know, you have to meet a lot of different requirements there. So um, it was a really good work from everyone on the NASA team. Um, we worked with ISS National Lab to really make that happen. And we were the first kind of private company to actually add water into, into space station, which is interesting. Um, but yeah. So what's the story behind the Furfy name? Oh, this is, this is good. So, uh, I grew up in Australia uh, and, and Daniel Faber, the CEO of OrbitFab, uh, he also grew up in Australia. He grew up in Tasmania, the little island below Australia. Um, and, and Furfy is an Australian word. Um, so Furfies are colonial water tanks that are about kind of a meter in diameter, have big cast iron ends, and then you kind of can put put wooden panels between them and tie them up and, and you get a water tank that you put on the back of a, of a horse. Um, so they're kind of how the West was won in Australia. It can be kind of a hot desert country. Um, so 
they're super important kind of Australian cultural things uh, that turned into this kind of word, which is a furphy, which is kind of like scuttlebutt. It's kind of like the stories you would tell around a water cooler for the same reasons. Um, they kind of went over overseas during World War One. Um, kind of a, a common relic people have in their homes kind of thing might be the end of these these water tanks. Uh, there's actually a beer now named after it as well, which happened after the experiment. And we were a little, we were a little bit like, uh, cool, but glad that didn't happen beforehand because we wouldn't have got to use the name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's where the name the name kind of comes from is that Australian water tank. And the, the funniest thing about it is uh, Gopal, one of the other founders, uh, he came up with the name, not not Daniel or I, uh, and told us about it. And we were like, yeah, that name is perfect since we're flying uh, water tanks to space. Yeah, it's a very serendipitous that it relates to your your heritage and also uh, like like culturally it fits uh, the mission as well. That's awesome. And it's and it's a fun word, you know. So yeah. that was that was my call sign when I was talking to the astronauts on the on the phone all the time. On the phone, on the radio. So what was the team for the Furphy mission? Yeah, so the, the team uh, was, was built up of Orbit, Orbit Fab and our kind of full-time staff um, as a really young company. And then uh, our venture capital fund, Bolt, um, they contributed a bunch of engineers, really, really talented engineers that have worked on a whole bunch of different uh, products, things like the iPhone and Pebble Watch and stuff like that. Uh, really, really talented guys that put in a lot of work. Um, and so we kind of like all kind of lived in in this building in San Francisco together, so to speak. Um, excellent machine shop here and and great access to that, um, which really let us move really, really quickly. You know, having a, a CNC mill on site and, you know, 3D printers and everything so we can rapid prototype and, and move quickly and, and that that great engineering expertise that they, that they brought as well to help. Did you build your Furphy spacecraft at Bolt? Yeah, right here, right here, so. In San Francisco? In San Francisco, on, on you know, in SOMA, so... Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us the story behind Furphy's development and what led to such a fast pace? Yeah, I mean, so they were founded in January, uh, Orbit Fab, uh, and around June, uh, we kind of had the the go ahead from ISS National Lab um, that they they had a slot for us. Wait, wait, wait. How? how? <laughs> uh, I think Jeremy is the answer to that. Um, yeah, Jeremy's extremely talented at finding the right solicitations, figuring out the the right people to talk to to find out what what is the science that that fits for the different programs, um, plugging away and, and keeping on working through all the programs and everything. There is a lot of paperwork required before you can do business with the U.S. government, so it's pretty impressive to get all that done and have you know a signed contract in six months. Um, and then Daniel was working all the the venture capital at the same time, um, so that we could bring venture capital money to the table. Um, to show that you know we have a serious business that wants to do science to support our business, um, and it kind of it was a good fit for ISS National Lab. I think um, you know they're looking at commercializing space station and those kinds of things. Um, fluid science is something that's always of interest um, because microgravity fluids, a lot of it's long duration work that you you, you simply cannot do in any other way. Um, you you can't really do it in a hyperbolic flight. You you can do really short stuff, but you know we were doing kind of thirty second two minute. Uh, runs, which which are kind of the absolute maximum. Um, yeah. So, so after, uh, so you got the contract uh, in June, and then, can you tell us the rest of the story? What happened after that? Yeah. So we got the contract in June. Uh, I joined the team. Um, kind of. Uh, there's actually a really funny thing in there because Furfies mean kind of water cooler chat, and in some ways they kind of mean white lies sometimes. So when when Daniel and I kind of first first started talking about the program. Uh, he told me that he would give me the Furphy schedule and uh, I didn't realize Furphy was the name of the program. I thought it was 
the like white lie schedule. Like, you know, when he said, so in three months we build the experiment and then it goes on a rocket and it goes to space. I thought that was the Furfy schedule, but it was the schedule for Furfy. Yeah. Um, like that's what we're telling NASA. No, that's actually what we're telling NASA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, building stuff that fast. Uh, the first thing is that the ISS program wasn't really designed around a three month turnaround uh, for, from kind of concept to flight. Um, I think, I think at the end it was, it was closer to four months, but yeah, not, not designed around that more of a kind of a two year, two year schedule. Um, and so there was a lot of work from people at NASA and ISS national lab in taking a lot of those processes and figuring out what you actually need to do and what is, you know, we have five meetings scheduled about, you know, five different safety boards. Wait, can we do it in three instead of five? Like, can we, can we get all that information across? Um, but the, the way you can pull something like that off is to have a small team, um, that, that are really, really all in the same kind of room and all communicating with each other really regularly, um, making sure people will understand their responsibilities and, you know, using the subject matter expert approach. Uh, you see it a lot of new space companies where people are kind of the responsible engineer for a subsystem. Um, we had a, a, a talented team and everyone kind of knew that we wanted to move quickly and, and we did. Uh, and we got a lot of help from the guys at NASA and ISS National Lab to, to make sure that was a, a smooth experience. Um, yeah. So... At, at the end of the day, I guess it's just about um, everyone understanding the schedule and, and figuring out your, your high-risk items and <laughs> addressing them one at a time um, and some late nights maybe. But yeah. Yeah, so once you put together your experiment, um, you got a ride on a SpaceX Dragon. Yep. Which brought it to the space station. So we actually got a ride on two SpaceX Dragons. Um, we ended up split up between two different flights. So we handed over in kind of October. Um and to hand over, you know, it's not just design it, build it. You got to design it, build it, um, vibration test it, and we had to vibe test it at loaded. Um, so, yeah, take, taking a, a box that, the kind of, uh, you know, you, you've done the FEA, you've done all the the analysis, and you're like, yeah, this is definitely going to survive. But it's another thing to fill it full of uh, fluid and, and put it on a vibe table and, and shake it in a bunch of different axes. Um, uh, EMI, AMC testing all that stuff. Um, a lot, a lot of space station specific testing. So looking at the temperatures of panels and things like that, making sure we're not going to burn the astronauts, uh, pressure testing, all of our, all of our, all of our fluid vessels and, uh, lines and everything like that. So yeah, lots of verification. Then we hand it over, um, put it on, take it to a cargo mission contract, uh, where we hand everything over. Uh, and then the first half went up on SpaceX 16, um, uh, which was, a kind of an eventful flight. Uh, we, the team went out there and, and watched that flight, which was very cool. It was my fourth flight or fifth flight I had stuff on, but the first one I got to see in person. So I'll remember that one forever. Um, it was, uh, you guys probably remember that flight as the one that was delayed uh, about a day because of the moldy rodent food, mm -hmm. um, which is an, an interesting reason, but the, the rodent research that they do is exceptional. Um, so everyone was, was, you know, like, yep, that's good science. That's important science. Um, and then uh, that was the one as well where the, the, the booster landed in the water. Um, so from where we were um, opposite the vehicle assembly building, it looked like it had landed and then it looked like it was keeping on landing. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a cool, exciting flight to go out for. Um, uh, came back uh, and then uh, the rigid tank, uh, it launched on SpaceX 17. So on the next flight. Why were they launched separately? Just came down to the size. Um, so they, they were both handed over at the same time, but the rigid tank ended up a big bag item. So it's, it's you know, almost a meter by two meter bag when it's, when it's in there with foam and, and the way that it was packed. Um, yeah. So just getting that much volume and mass available on the vehicles at different times. And then, um, once it was 
at the space station and unloaded. Can you tell us about what what happened? Uh, take us through the life of Furphy. The first thing that happens is we, we split up the team back here. Um, so uh, I went to Alabama and Jeremy went to Alabama. Uh, and the rest of the team kind of stayed in California. Um, we decided that we were going to be supporting uh, over the radio. Um, they call it being enabled, space ground enabled. Uh, and we decided that doing that in Alabama with the with the team at Huntsville, the payload team there is fantastic. So we, we wanted to be there, we're there with them. The rest of the guys were here to support in the event that anything went wrong. Uh, we're out there. Uh, the astronauts basically uh, open, open everything up. And uh, the first thing you do is check that nothing's leaked, which nothing had leaked. Kind of, you know... It's the same kind of thing where like when you put it on the vibe cell, you're like, this is all going to be good. We've done all the analysis. We've done all the tests. But you still, like every time, every time a rocket launches, I'm sure everyone's like, yeah, you know, stuff. <laughs> so um, then we get to our science. So we did kind of some some demonstration of some different kinds of docking adapters that we were interested in. And then uh, collected a little bit of data, made sure that our systems were working. And then we the first thing we do is uh, basically spin the units, one of them full and one of them empty log some data there and then we, we go ahead to pump and then uh, we actually hit an anomaly that was that was kind of fun so that day was split up between two different two different sections so we were kind of uh, we were on space to ground first thing in the morning uh, about like three in the morning Alabama time um, which being from the west coast is very very early in the morning and then again uh, at kind of uh, six or seven at night Alabama time um, they were doing a, a long spacewalk that day so the astronauts had quite a long day um, they were waiting to kind of support the guys that were on the spacewalk when they came back in um, so we kind of worked through there and uh, our anomaly was basically had kind of two symptoms um, or three symptoms, really. We were we were burning through batteries much faster than we expected. Uh, we were originally designed to use lithium ion batteries and we actually designed to use AA batteries in this system because uh, we wanted it to be able to be built quickly. So if we had to use a spacecraft battery, we would have had to batch test that battery and, and provide all that data on. It's important to make sure the battery doesn't do anything weird. But if we use batteries that were available from ISS Pantry, then a lot of that work is already done. They do that at kind of at scale. Um, so we'd been planning on using kind of uh, disposable AA lithium ions. And uh, all the stuff that happened with lithium ions and, and airplanes and everything meant that the, the risk posture towards lithium ions changed. And so we were told to use alkaline batteries, which is, is a little bit different if for the electrical engineers in the room are shaking their heads right now thinking... That's not how, so, you know, you repeat the power budget and you repeat everything and you go, I mean, yeah, it still works, but I lost margin. Like, um, so it's so Kerbal, if, you know, that's so scrappy. It's just, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the that's the joy of, of, of space station is that you can do things at a, at a different risk posture. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, alkaline batteries have some effects where they, they discharge kind of faster in space. The internal resistance is higher. Uh, it's not a super well understood phenomenon from what I understand. There might be some papers out there that explain it. <laughs> Someone can uh, find me on Twitter and shoot me those papers. I'd appreciate them. Um, but we, we were discharging batteries way faster than we expected it in any way. And, and faster on the, the flex tank, one of the vehicles, than on the other one. And then the other thing we had was when the batteries were changed, they were quite warm on the flex tank. So they were, they were really like discharging. And we were like, oh, that's interesting. And then when we went to pump into the flex tank, uh, we couldn't pump into it. Uh, we were getting kind of, we have a, a software system that when we get high pressure, cuts down the pumps and then we also have kind of a backup where the power system is designed so that it cuts out the pumps we have physical backups too we were triggering that first software one kind of every time so we tried a bunch of different things did a bunch of troubleshooting and so i'm, I'm at this point in time i'm i'm on space to ground so I'm, I'm on the radio with uh christina cock was the astronaut we were working with that day and she was flying through everything and she'd kind of say how about we try this and, I, and i'd say okay yeah cool and then i'd 
jump on the other loop, kind of like press some more buttons. And now I'm talking to uh, everyone on the, on the payload team, safety engineers. So every time we want to try something that's not in the in the script, in the procedures, we're having to get oh, approval yeah. for yeah. that. Yeah. And then sometimes it goes to the flight director who's in Houston. And so there's kind of this, this circle of conversation. But at any point in time when the astronaut speaks, uh, kind of they, they trump everyone. And so you kind of like often it's it's the only time you can be talking to a flight director at NASA and then just be like, sorry, like just <laughs> talk over the top of them and kind of ignore them. Um, uh, and it's kind of like what has to happen because the astronaut's time is, is kind of the most most essential. Um, so we're kind of working that and the team did really, really well. You know, it's 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 having a team around you that can support and everyone working different things from the safety engineers to your team members to the the people that wrote the procedures at NASA because uh, we kind of like got a lot of support writing procedures because they, they write them a way that makes sense to the astronauts. Um, so we got about halfway through that activity and, and made the decision to stop the the DMC, the, the data team there. They they uh, pulled the data down much quicker than normal. So they pulled the data down kind of overnight for us um, off the SD cards that we were using. And so uh, we got that data, actually had it by the time we were kind of back in the, uh, in the hotel, kind of like started plotting data, called everyone in California and, you know, they'd been kind of listening in and, and were across it, gave them like a proper kind of debrief and we're like, all right, Here's the data. Uh, I have to go to bed because <laughs> I've been awake for a long period of time. And we were kind of lucky that the way our schedule was, was that we had a, a day of downtime. And then on the Friday, we were scheduled to do our offload activity. We were going to offload the water into the space station. And it was kind of like, look look through the data. Like, let's talk about it in the morning and, and see what we think it is. And so the team back here took that data and, and crunched through it. We, we looked at it a little bit in the morning and we went, okay, it could be a couple things. But uh, the one thing it could be, there's one piece of equipment in the in kind of the whole fluid system that doesn't log its current usage, and that is a solenoid valve. So there's basically the way our system was designed for this experiment. There's a there's a gear pump that that moves the fluid, and in parallel to that, we have a solenoid valve, uh, and so that lets you pump into a vehicle when it's turned off, because you can't you don't need to backdrive the pump, and so that's a normally open solenoid valve, and then when you pump through it, you close that valve, so it uses a little bit more power while it's pumping, but in its normal behavior, it's it's open. Uh, and so our theory was that the pump had shorted somewhere between like launch and, and flight. And, and, you know, that, that's not a, that's a part that we'd put in. That was a really low cost part. You know, this is space station, you're building stuff quickly and you're like, Hey, you know, this, this, this stand in part is the same as a much more expensive, better part, um, but different. So we'll fly that. And yeah, so you, you think, okay, well, how can we figure out if that's the problem? And you go, let's go short the pump on the bench. So went and shorted the pump on the bench in California and spat out a plot and compared that plot to the plot we had and went, ah, this looks exactly the same. Like, you know, and so you go, huh, if, you, if, you, if you're shorting the pump, then you're drawing current really fast. So you're going to discharge the batteries really quickly and the batteries are going to get really warm as well. Oh, cool. So now we have kind of two, three symptoms that we're, we're tracing back to a single fault. At that point in time, you have to then, you know, and, and Daniel's really good at, at being the pessimist in the room and asking, he's like, we could have three different failures that are causing three different sets of symptoms. Um, you know, you, you want to proceed back to Occam's razor, but it's important to remember that sometimes you get messed up failures. Keep working through that. And about 11 in the morning, Alabama time, we made the call. We said, yeah, this is, this is what the problem is. Uh, it has a really, really simple fix too. We just turn the flex tank off when we pump into it. Um, so we went back to NASA, presented all this data and said, Hey, here's the problem. Can we do the activity tomorrow? Um, now, Nothing in the space station operations is built around doing an operation with a new procedure written the day before. So then it becomes uh, an exercise in making sure you're doing things still the same way, um, using your crew notes effectively, 
and really it comes down to the the crew being really spot on and really fast on space station um, they were moving through all their activities so fast uh, that we knew that what we'd written as a five-hour procedure if we cut just a little bit from it uh, like dynamically on the fly we could, we could squeeze that into a three-hour slot that we had the next day so we went back up there the next day uh, and and did operations again uh, turned the flex tank off when we were pumping into it but turned it back on so that we could record data uh, when we needed to record data and everything went flawlessly. It was exactly what we'd predicted. Um, so, yeah, component failure, uh, but but enough telemetry and data points coming down and a good enough understanding of the hardware that you can kind of reconfigure on the fly. And I, I think that's how you should do microspace all the time because <laughs> you can never make a system that, that, that won't fail. But it was, uh, it was a cool experience, especially sending out messages to everyone kind of in the front room and, and at, at operations and kind of sending out emails. They sent out an email kind of internally um, which was kind of like a, hey, <laughs> like we got Furfy working because um, they spend a lot of time debugging things and, and fixing problems. And, and, and unfortunately, this doesn't always come together like this and this this quickly. Uh, and it really came down to a lot of different team members at NASA as well, really pushing to get the science done. So it's kind of fitting. It's a story that's right in line with the rest of what you've already spoken about with Orbit Fab, things coming together on the fly, but things working out serendipitously. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's not just serendipity though. It's, it's, uh, I like to think it's good systems engineering design. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to hope, um, it's really spending a lot of time. Like, I mean, we went in for operations with these big failure trees and it, it's really hard as a small space business to make a decision between how much planning you do for failure, uh, versus like how much you just assume that your system won't fail. Um, and yeah, so, so do you attribute a lot of it to being not just prepared in terms of quantity, but also choosing the correct things to prepare for? I think, yeah, and th there's definitely a degree of, of, of luck in choosing the best things to prepare for, but but you have to be aggressive. And, and a lot of the tools that they use in kind of, you know, your big space, your ULAs and people use are the right tools. You just have to use them differently. So your your risk matrices, your your failure mode analysis, like these are all, all tools that everyone has to use in, in space engineering and should use in all engineering. Um, you just have to think about about how you apply them. Think about the level of detail. Um, you, you don't need to go to the you know hundreds of thousands of, of steps, but you do need to really step back repeatedly and, and have really candid systems level conversations. Um, really, really have a the kind of the, the pessimist view of like everything is going to break. Why won't it break? When it does break, what is it going to do? Uh, and design multiple redundancies and, and lots of redundant data collection around that so that you can then look at a diagram and go, ah, okay, let's try this. So not just the correct tools, but you said using your tools correctly and understanding what you're working with. Yeah. yeah I have a question here. Did anything unexpected happen <laughs> on orbit? But well, I, I'd still like to ask that. So you had an anomaly, but Technically, I guess I could argue that you kind of anticipated you'd have a failure maybe, but like, I mean, I wouldn't say we, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't expect failure, but we always anticipate right. it, I guess. But did anything un, unanticipated, unexpected, or, or is there anything that happened that really surprised you? One thing that was, was, that was really cool. It wasn't unexpected, but it was really cool to see was that, uh, we kind of had a bunch of predictions about how, how the furfies would move. One of the things that was kind of <laughs> we didn't know what to do is uh, the flexible toroidal tanks. Um, I, I challenge anyone to go out there and make a, a a fluid a fluid model, a CFD model of a flexible toroidal tank in microgravity, and tell me that it's going to work without any data to say that it will. That's empirical. 
So um, what was kind of in some ways unexpected was a lot of it was actually pretty good. It, it kind of did what we expected. Stuff stiffened in the places we thought it would stiffen and, and you know, behaved the ways that we expected. Um, there was some, there's some ways that the fluid moved that we didn't quite, you know, necessarily think about. Um, the Definitely the half full tank is uh, scarier than the, the full and the empty tank. I guess the the most unexpected thing was was kind of as we were finishing up ops on that first day, we we kind of hit ninety percent of our science objectives, and I'd, I'd set a bunch of uh, I think I'm re I'm really into setting I think mission success is all about setting clear mission objectives, and and defining what you really really need to do with a mission. What data do you need to collect, and what are you going to learn? Because every mission is a, is about learning to do more missions, uh, and so at the end of that first day of ops we'd hit everything that I'd written down as like, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be kind of upset with the mission. I, I would think of it as a failure in my head. Um, we hit all that easily, um, even though we hadn't collected nearly the amount of science data we wanted to at that point in time. Um, so I guess the unexpected thing for me was that we were able to get the team to move so quickly that we were able to, to do our activity two days later. And then we did our offload on the Monday, um, which was not a scheduled activity. It wasn't in the timeline. So I guess the unexpected thing for me was was how well everyone uh, worked to, to get that to happen. Um, and, you know, just fantastic, fantastic experience. So so that's pretty clear. You think your the Furphy mission was a success? Definitely. Yeah. I think it was a huge, a huge success, uh, especially for us just working with NASA and, and learning how they do things on space station. I'd love to hear about what's next for OrbitFab. Right now, OrbitFab is, we're, we're very focused on what we call Rafty, uh, which is our rapidly attachable fuel transfer interface. Um, I have to apologize that I made that acronym up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, so basically, if you want to put fuel into a car, you need kind of a gas cap uh, and a and a Bowser. Um, <laughs> I got maybe Bowser is an Australian word, but yeah, you know, I you have no idea what a Bowser is. But I, I think you guys use the word Bowser for your kind of military fuel trucks. But yeah, you need you need a, a spigot for the fuel to come out of, and you and you need a place for the fuel to go in. Uh, and so Rafty is is that that spigot and and uh, the place for the fuel to go in on spacecraft. Um, so we kind of we went out to about 30 different companies and collected their requirements and looked at at what they would like in a reusable in-space fueling port and then aggregated that down and uh, and started designing around that. And then we realized that we get the added bonus that if we develop a system that you can autonomously fuel in orbit, you could also fuel it on the ground. So you can kind of like swap it in as a, as a swap in replacement for what you call a fill drain or a service valve on the ground. So we've been working on that component, getting it getting it up to kind of like really, really high levels of flight readiness um, for a lot of different propellants, uh, working with with some big big companies out there to make sure that we're going to meet their requirements, working with governments and things for their requirements as well. And then and then testing that and we're actually selling it on now. So it's, uh, it's sold to a couple of thruster companies um, and it will be going onto some spacecraft, uh, which is really exciting because those spacecraft are refuelable spacecraft. So kind of starting to break that chicken and egg problem we talked about. So um, is there engineering and, and is there flight hardware built here in California? Yes. So the flight hardware that we're handing over to our first customers, yeah, getting built here in California, up in uh, up in the Bay Area. Yeah. Split between kind of here and our South Bay facility. So, And then uh, some of our early customers we're, we're doing a collaborative engineering work with, which is really cool. Uh, That's a component. Does OrbitFab have any plans for a oh, spacecraft yeah. of your own? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, our first tankers will be flying next year. Um, what? Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> wait, the, wait, wait. We like to say aspirational schedules, kind of like Elon does, but um, but we like to stick to them too. So yeah. Can you share any details or? Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, 16 unit CubeSat minimum viable product. That's the point 
like, you know, this is Silicon Valley. That's the point where it economically scales. You can make money there. You make more money with a one-ton spacecraft, but you can make money there. Um, and then the next thing that I, I, you know, that I'm really pushing for and that we're, we're really pressing ahead with is, is that end to end demo mission where we take one of our tankers and we take a satellite servicing vehicle, uh, and we dock the two together in space and we transfer fuel between them. And that's kind of my, uh, that's my, uh, Falcon, uh, yeah, Falcon four, you know, that's my, that's my, like, uh, SpaceX, you know, that that's a moment that I think will, will change the space industry. So that's why I'm excited about Orbifab. That's very exciting. Will Orbitfab be sharing any of the lessons you've learned in building uh, Furfy A in such a short period of time, B, learning all of the different things you've learned about fluid mechanics in microgravity, um, and C, all the thinking you've done in terms of uh, spacecraft to spacecraft operations? Um, will Orbitfab be sharing yeah, that? Yeah, so um, working backwards through that list, uh, Jeremy sits as the vice chair on an organization called Confers. Uh, which it's a DARPA-funded organization that uh, is trying to establish standards for satellite servicing. Um, so yeah, we're, we're pretty involved in those satellite servicing rendezvous prox ops standard setting and, and kind of like the CONOPS stuff that we understand about in-space refueling, trying to get that out into the industry um, and out to government so that government can understand this. Um, the stuff about fluid mechanics, uh, we have a, a pretty big data set about uh, in-space fluid mechanics. Um, and so we, we'd be happy to share that with kind of like educational partners and things like that. Um, yeah, probably won't publish like the whole data set open on the internet, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, actually there might be a way to do that over time. Um, but yeah, if there's anyone listening that comes from an educational institute or something like that, that, that wants to chat about... Uh, slosh and fluid mechanics that kind of stuff uh hit me up on uh on twitter or email or whatever and yeah um and then on spacecraft design uh yeah like we, we try to publish uh a lot of kind of conference papers talking about things um i, I i'd say there's a lessons learned in in spacecraft operate uh, space station operations doing them kind of quickly and and that interaction i think that was a, a big win for the whole team so yeah i'd like to publish paper around that and uh circling back to your personal experience with this Furphy mission. You obviously learned a lot along the way. Oh, yeah. Um, but you, you also came to it with uh, a really robust per perspective in terms of systems engineering. Um, so do you have any advice for um, engineers that might be listening to this podcast with, you know, they might be working in the industry or have aspirations to be an aerospace engineer? Uh, what would you tell them in order to prepare them to be yeah, you know, an effective engineer. Uh, I would say be uh, be aggressive with your requirements, and and by that I mean really, really try to figure out where your requirements come from and what your real requirements are, um, and what are the requirements that aren't written down? Because a lot of missions have uh, have requirements that are that are not you know written down. I've come across CubeSat missions where their you know second requirement out of their list is actually take a photo so that they can get money for their lab so that they could actually fly more missions. And if you don't write that down and like address that and really think about how you dissolve a system that, that solves your actual needs, then you, then you won't. Um, and then figure out what's, as a result of having documented and really, really thought about those requirements, figure out what is not, what you're doing that is not part of your requirements. So be, re be willing to aggressively descope, find the components that you can swap out, uh, find the things, you know, we, uh, I had a, Furphy originally had like a deployable system where the astronaut would kind of press a button and the flex tank would, would fully deploy like it would in space. And there's a lot of complexity with having springs and mechanisms and things that could fly out in space station. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't a core requirement, you know, like we really wanted to do the fluid mechanics uh, and it was was better to to learn quicker there 
uh, and have that mechanism design that, that we're pretty happy with uh, and test that later then then to try and press that into all in the one basket you know so what are some of the challenges of building a satellite refueling system using uh, things on a small scale you mentioned you know the minimum viable product being a 16u cubesat and how if you could do a one ton satellite what are what are design decisions that are just not possible when dealing with microsatellites? Yeah, um, there's a bunch. Uh, so the big things are like volume and power. Obviously, you you have less when you when you go to a smaller spacecraft. Um, volume for us is mostly not a concern. Um, I mean, we we want to maximize the volume of fuel in every spacecraft that we fly. Uh, but we're about making mechanisms that we that are the right size, you know. Um, the the power stuff uh, and and the heat dissipation uh, can be an issue, you know. If you have spacecraft that are small and you have heat and power to deal with, it, it's it's tricky. You don't have as much margin there as you do with the larger ones. Um, what about uh, attitude control with a spacecraft that significantly changes in mass and the moment of inertia changes because that mass is moving around your system? Yeah, so uh, that's something we've been thinking about a bunch, actually, uh, and it comes back to, to thinking about the requirements, like I was saying. Um, so uh, our tankers are designed to be extremely good, uh, extremely good clients for satellite servicing vehicles. So they're designed to be very easy to dock with, but not to have kind of the active docking technology themselves. Uh, the satellite servicing guys will have that to begin with. And so um, they need to be stable. Um, they need to hold an attitude, but it may not need to be a really specific attitude. And they need to be stable in certain axes more than in other axes. Um, so there's a lot of cool novel stuff you can do um, that is not kind of in your regular wheelhouse of attitude determination and control because you're not trying to point a camera at a really specific place. You're, you're just trying to be very still. Um, but then you also have the complexity in your conops that uh, at some point in time you have to turn your ADCS off um, so you don't have two ADCS that are fighting each other. Um, so there's there's a, there's a bit of work there about defining when that takes place and how that that handshake uh, between the two spacecraft takes place. Also, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate something being in your wheelhouse when talking about reaction wheels. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> I, my bad. <laughs> you mentioned uh, this RPOD acronym. Rendezvous, Proxops, and Docking. And how the state of the art for small satellites, are, we're working on making that a, a reality. Uh, do you ever... Or do you expect that to be a solved problem for small satellites at some point where there will be off-the-shelf components and systems to handle this? Or is that going to be uh, a one-off system that companies are going to have to solve individually? No, I, I really want to see it become a product. Um, you know, personal opinion here that it, that it should be a product that people can go buy. Um, I think one of the most exciting things that happened in the small sat industry in the last kind of 10, 15 years is that uh, people used to develop attitude determination and control systems that we were talking about from scratch every time. Um, and that's a, a major subsystem of a spacecraft to design. And nowadays you can go uh, to, you know, your blue canyons, you can go to your Clyde spaces, you can go to your GOM spaces, you can go to a whole bunch of different people. Um, I'm not saying a bunch of great people. Uh, there's a group in Florida, uh, but yeah. And you can just buy an attitude determination and control system uh, in a box plug it in and expect it to work and it has flight heritage and it will work um, which is fantastic as a spacecraft designer uh, because it means you can fly a system that's reused and has flight heritage that has expected performance um, 
and you have less components to stick together because everyone kind of knows that the systems fail at the interfaces. So by defining that as one interface between the ADCS and the rest of the spacecraft, instead of having 10 interfaces you're trying to control, really lets you move faster and, and build a, a better, more reliable spacecraft, kind of like leveraging, standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. Um, we could also talk about just interacting with astronauts on station. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the cool, really cool parts for me, um, you know, kind of went, had to go through all the training and then, and then, you know, you get to sit down and, and you press the button and the, the, that, that quindar, which is that beep, that beep, you know, happens. And then you're talking to an astronaut in space, yeah. um, which was kind of, you know, you have to have one of those pinch me moments where you're like seven-year-old James would be extremely, extremely excited. But at that point in time, you know, you, you're so focused on what you're doing, you almost don't, don't notice. Um, and then, uh, you know, we were focused on, you know, the, the script kind of thing and what to do and everything. And then uh, Christina says, oh, we just, I like to take photos of Australia as we pass over it. And you go, oh, wow, I'm talking to a real human that's really in space. <laughs> like, you know, I can have small talk with someone that's in space, <laughs> like, which is kind of a, kind of an, an incredible thing. And then we had the joy that we were getting kind of full high def video down um, the whole time as well. Uh, and kind of like really seeing what was happening. Um, it's, it's just, it's undeniably like unbelievably cool to see something happen and see an astronaut kind of like be stoked about an experiment design piece. Or, um, it's, it's funny sometimes when there's something about the user interface that you're like, you think is not quite perfect, but you're like, oh, I will do with it. And then they, they tell you, Hey, this could be improved. And you're like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, um, yeah, like it's just, uh, it's a very cool experience. Uh, some, some funny stuff, you know, I got to ask an astronaut to, to take the batteries out and check they're in the right way. <laughs> which is something I never thought I would do in my life. But, you know, always check the low levels when you're troubleshooting things. Um, just just a very cool experience uh, working working with uh, with all the astronauts we worked with. And working with a human in space also gave you other advantages, like the astronaut who knows how to work with things in microgravity and knows how to operate the system. They have their instructions, but they also have their oh, intuition. Yeah, they're, they're, they're extremely... It's, it's kind of funny because you write the instructions like almost like you know, so that anyone could pick them up. The instructions are uh, like, there's a lot of uh, acronyms and, and abbreviations in there, but if, if you had them all kind of written out in those acronyms written out in long form, kind of anyone could follow them, but then you have also have this like brilliant mind that's executing on them, um, which means that, you know, often they're like, you're like, hey, could, oh, you, you've done the next five steps. Awesome, thanks. Um, and, and the crew right now is, is really fantastic. We worked with David as well, also also fantastic. Maybe maybe David, I think I mispronounced his name there. But yeah, uh, really, really fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, we, we had some, uh, some, sometimes, you know, you get the, the, the hilariousness of, um, when we, when we weren't pumping, uh, what we really don't want to do from a safety point of view is spill water in station. Um, we were actually, this is actually funny about the fact that we, we built it so quickly is us, our payload was considered safety catastrophic. Um, anything that's over, I think it's a half gallon of water is a safety catastrophic pay payload because if that all that water was to spill, it's enough water that it could short out a major subsystem inside the space station and, and could like endanger lives. Um, so, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of controls were built around, you know, we require three controls against every catastrophic safety hazard uh, and they, they can be dissimilar controls. So, you know, you're not gonna have three pieces of software, you'll have hardware, software, crew, you know. And then uh, we, we had a crew member say, we could squirt some water into a towel and kind of look around the room and go, I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> Just politely say like, uh, I'm getting uh, like, you know, like, no, let's try something else. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the crew are like capable of solving and fixing a lot of problems. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we have to, to think about, think about what, what the, the, the correct slow kind of course of action is. 
but your your next experiment will be spacecraft only. It's not going to be on the space station. Well, we're actually going to be doing some more stuff with space station. So uh, our rapidly attachable fuel transfer interface uh, we'll send up we'll send up to space station, uh, and and we'll get the astronauts some hands on time with it. Um, we'd like it to be something that works inside space station and outside space station, uh, and then it's going to go outside space station and it's going to dock. Uh, I'm hoping thousands of times. Um, spacecraft mechanisms. Uh, there's all kinds of problems with cold welding, which is where you have two pieces of metal in a vacuum that basically don't know which one is supposed to be which piece of metal and decide that they're all the same piece of metal. Um, yeah. So uh, no one really has tested a docking adapter thousands of times in in the actual space environment because it's it's not just the vacuum, but you also got the atomic oxygen, you got the radiation, you got everything. Yeah. So so we'll be continuing to use the space station as a kind of a test bed. It's a great place to do experiments. Um, but we will be doing free flying spacecraft too, and you know selling selling fuel to customers. So that's it's kind of surreal. Um, well, just to be to be honest. Uh, so again, like all these engineering decisions and stuff, all this. Doing an experiment and stuff is is familiar to me, but working with an astronaut is something that I, it's surreal. But also working with an astronaut to design a spacecraft, a spacecraft refueling station, like it's it's so novel. Um, but you're speaking about it like it only took a few months to put together. Only took a few months to put together, and you're talking about not next decade, next year. Yeah, I mean, um, ag- aggressive schedules. So, and uh, if you have aggressive schedules and you, you keep track of them and you keep everyone's kind of eye on the prize and you're aggressive with what you actually need to accomplish to get it done, I think I think it's possible. I mean, have a look. I saw a photo of a Starship Hopper the other day that was next to a photo of the early SpaceX Hopper. And someone was like, hey, this was six years ago. Like, like that's that's the progress that, that we've been making in new space. And it's not just SpaceX. It's a, it's a lot of different companies. There are all kinds of, of, of cool companies across the industry doing things. Earth observation companies, you know, like visual, radar, SAR, like like all kinds of new technologies that, yeah, lots and lots of teams out there are people that are like really stoked and really working hard. So I, I think we can accomplish a lot more in the next kind of six years. What's next for the, the OrbitFab team? Yes. So right now uh, we're, we're part of a, a Techstars incubator program. Um, so we're kind of split up as a team, um, traveling back and forth between here and Los Angeles. Uh, great program supported by JPL, Lockheed Martin, Starburst, uh, a, a bunch of Air Force. Air Force is a big, a big sponsor there. Uh, a bunch of big names, um, learning a lot about how we can make our business better there. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, we're working on Rafty, getting Rafty out to people, um, testing, 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 and more testing. Um, yeah. And then, uh, programs and, and schedules for for future work. Um, and then the, the other thing we've been doing is we've been releasing a series of white papers. Um, so they kind of explain uh, in economic and some engineering terms uh, how our business works and how it can can change different space businesses. So the, the first white paper is on our website right now, uh, orbitfab.space. I should, and uh, you can go download it and read about it. That one's about deorbit tugs and how, how their businesses can be changed. Um, I believe the next white paper will be on Leo to Geo tugs. Um, so kind of a, another new business that's standing up where you have a spacecraft that does that that orbit race and then comes back down and can be reused instead of using a disposable kick stage. Well, James, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, yeah, we, we wish you luck uh, with OrbitFab and congratulations on a successful Furphy mission. Um, is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Just thanks very much. It's been a fun night. And where can people get in touch with you or OrbitFab after the show? 
people can email me, uh, james at orbitfab.space. Uh, you can find us at orbitfab.space. And uh, you can tweet me at at, at james underscore Baltitude. Um, Baltitude is like multitude, but with a B. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. And thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to get future ones on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry at our website, blog.spexcast.com. And let us know what you think of the show. Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service, or reach out to us on Twitter at SpexCast, or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. This is freaking awesome, man. Like, ah, this gets me so excited.